Let me start us off with a word of prayer tonight. Dear Father, we come, we're thankful for you tonight. We praise you, we worship you. We're thankful uh, that we have hope tonight, that we have peace anchored in you tonight. We're thankful that we have a Savior, the forgiveness of sin uh, tonight. And so we just lift up the name of our, of our hope, of our Savior, Jesus. Uh, I pray tonight as we have gathered that we are pleasing in your sight, uh, that what we do brings honor and glory to your name. I pray for uh, our classes that are meeting tonight. I pray for the kids uh, that are learning the truth of God's word, that a foundation uh, is being laid this night as they study your word. I pray for our youth, uh, the same thing in a world that's shifting, a world that, that twists and turns, a world that would jerk the carpet out from under uh, our young people. I pray again that a foundation of truth is laid, that an anchor is set, on the truth of God's word. And then I pray for our adult classes that are meeting tonight as well. I pray that you would lead, that you would speak, uh, that you'd be known and glorified in our meeting tonight, our classes tonight. Uh, we do come tonight and just tell you, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we worship you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to continue in our study, the grand scheme of things. Uh, tonight already we're in the 21st week. It seems like we've been doing it a long time but at the same time, it seems like we've just gotten started. We're in the 21st week. Uh, our lesson tonight is entitled, Are We There Yet? Uh, if you remember, we're moving through now uh, the Exodus account, the, the story of the Israelites, the children of Israel, as they leave Egypt. Uh, think about this, and I, and I was thinking as we start to set this up tonight, this is a big portion of the Old Testament. This one account is, is really a big chunk of what we learn in the Old Testament. Well, uh, rightly so, because this account is foundational to us knowing God, to us knowing what he's doing with, with people, to us knowing his character, uh, to seeing who he is. And, and you, you see the account, you see the detail of the account, but then you see the rest of the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. They're reminded, remember this account, think about this account, tell your kids of this account. And so this is a foundational piece of our understanding who our God is. Our God is the God that sees the plight of his people and then himself steps in and who saves his people. That's who he is. That is his nature. That is his character. And that's what we see in this account. Well, guess what? That's going to hold true all the way through Scripture. Our God sees our plight as sinners and steps in in the person of Jesus Christ and gives us, shows us our salvation by faith in Jesus. So again, this is a foundational understanding of who God is, the character of God that provides our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, our key point tonight, and this is a big truth, and it's something we need to, to set in cement, something we need to understand. Here's the truth tonight. We can trust God. We can trust God. In all things, at all times, in all situations, we can trust God. And the flip side of that, operating in our own wisdom will always end poorly, which means this. I'm going to set my course. I'm going to decide what I do. I'm going to trust my logic, my wisdom, and forego what God has led me or has commanded me to do. Operating in your own wisdom will always end poorly. Now, in the, the context of what's happening now, and I think it's important uh, to set the context, remember, remember where they're at tonight. God has heard their cries. They are enslaved in Egypt. God has heard their cries. 
God has raised up a deliverer in the person of Moses. So he acts. He steps in. He calls Moses. He enables and empowers Moses. He sends a deliverer. God has crushed Egypt. They have the plagues. Uh, the people are set free. They get to the Red Sea. Uh, it opens up. The sea falls in and crushes Pharaoh's army. God has crushed Egypt. God has set them free. Um, they're moving out. God has provided after that manna. They're hungry. Guess what? They have manna in the morning. We want meat. He provides quail. Uh, he provides water. He provides direction. He's going to lead them. And so God himself is going to show them how far to go and where to go. He's He's leading them, giving them direction. And so all of that, God has moved, God has worked, God has shown his provision. And then in the midst of that, what do the Israelites do? Man, God's working, doing marvelous things, mighty things. Here's what they do. They begin to question. Well, did we just come out here to die? Well, wouldn't it have been better if we had just stayed back there? They begin to doubt. They begin to doubt God. They actually begin to rebel against God. You know what? That we had stayed in Egypt, that this would have never happened to us. The Bible says, and it's a word we've seen for two weeks, uh, they murmur against God. It's a word, uh, a buzzing, really it goes across the nation. It's a complaining against God. And so here he is, he's, he's in the process of delivering him, of saving him. Here he is, he's caring for him. And what are they doing? They're complaining, they're complaining, they're complaining. The question when we get to that point is this. How do they do that? How do they do that? How do you see the Red Sea and in a matter of days go, well, we're going to starve to death? Actually see the Red Sea part. Walk through on dry ground and say, we're, we're not going to make it. We're going to starve to death. How do they forget so easily? And I no more say that than I start to think about us. I start to think about me. Same thing. How do I forget so easily? How do I lose focus so easily? How do I have a lack of trust so quickly after we see God do tremendous things? Tonight our verses are found in Numbers chapter 11 through 14. Every week we're not able to cover uh, the entirety of the set of verses, and so I would encourage you, read the verses maybe before you come, read the verses after you get home, read the verses during the rest of the week. Uh, interesting things, a lot of small details that do matter, but our, our verses tonight are found in, in chapters, Numbers chapter 11 through chapter 14. All right, we're going to pull some pieces out of those chapters tonight, look at some segments of that, and, and think about them tonight. First thing we're going to look at is really an interesting perspective. Now you have the perspective of the children of Israel, you have the perspective of what God's doing, what about this guy Moses? What about what Moses sees? What about what Moses uh, experiences? Uh, we're going to look at the man in the middle. In this account, in these chapters tonight, the Israelites again are found in this constant state of dissatisfaction. And I'll just tell you, you can call it what you want to, but really it's just dissatisfaction. If they get this much, they want more. If they see this, they want to see more. And really it's just dissatisfaction. Uh, contentment or dissatisfaction. They're not satisfied. Well, here they are again. They're not satisfied. And again, they're found complaining. And you read the account, and look at there. We have manna. Well, it's just manna. I'm tired of manna. I've been eating a lot of manna. And, and on and on. We want meat. And then here's quail. And it's not very long, and they start to complain about that. They complain. They complain. They're not satisfied. Well, 
I don't know how God is as gracious as he is, but guess what the complaining does? The complaining makes God angry. It actually upsets God. They're constant murmuring. They're constant complaining. I'm going to read some verses. Um, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity. Hardships. They became like people that are complaining of hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, was sparked. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. All right, God responds in anger. God gets tired of it. He's, he's tired of their complaining. Chapter 11, verse 33, just the same picture. They want meat, they want meat, they want meat. They're complaining against God. He says he's going to give us so much they're going to get sick eating it. But then there's this verse, verse 33. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. Verse 33, they want meat, he sends them meat. God's anger is kindled, and as they eat it, he strikes them dead. He kills them for their complaining. So, all right, watch what's happening here. We're moving in the camp. We're seeing what's happening. The people are complaining to Moses a complaint that's supposed to be carried for God. It's basically complaining against God, but Moses is the representative of God, and so they're complaining to Moses. So here is Moses and the complaints are brought to him. They're upset about this, and they're upset about that. The complaints come to Moses. Well, guess what? God speaks to the people through Moses. So the people are talking to Moses, a message for God. God is speaking to Moses, a message for the people. And so he tells them, you tell them this. You tell them this, that thing. And Moses is stuck in the middle of that. They're upset, and they're complaining. God has an answer. He's mad, and he tells them the answer. Moses is caught in the go-between of of those responses. Even in the midst of that, you start reading that. These people turn on Moses. The other folks turn against Moses. Even in the midst of that, his own brother and sister turn on him. Aaron, Aaron has seen the miracles. Aaron knows what God is doing. And even Aaron and and Moses' sister turn on him. I think it's pride. Um, maybe Maybe it's just rebellion. But Aaron actually says, does God only speak through Moses? Doesn't he speak through other people? Can he speak through us? And I don't know if if they want the leadership position or they're tired of of everybody going to Moses, but even his family uh, begins to turn on him. Moses is caught in the middle. When I read about Moses, man, he he writes the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, He is beloved by God. Um, He's at the Mount of Transfiguration. What an awesome thing to be Moses. Well, guess what? We're going to find out it's not exactly that awesome. Moses is caught in the middle. Moses gets tired and upset of being caught in the middle. Chapter 11, verses 10 through 15. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. The people are complaining. They're weeping. They're upset. Each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly kindled. God's mad at them. He's stuck in the middle. And Moses was displeased. All right, here's Moses' response. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant, speaking of himself? 
And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I that conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? I didn't, these aren't my kids. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal this way with me, if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see this wretchedness. Moses actually says this. If this is how it's going to be, if you love me at all, just kill me right now. If you like me, if you have any favor for me, God, kill me right now. Don't leave me in the midst of, of this hardship, of this place. Moses is stuck in the middle. It's not, it's not the ideal place to be. After that, we read that God appoints 70 elders, 70 leaders of the nation. Uh, they divide up the work. They divide up the, the, the role of ruling over the people, of leading the people, and, and the work is, is shared over those 70 people. All right, so the first thing we see is Moses is the man stuck in the middle. Second thing we see is this, milk, honey, and sour grapes. That's the next section on your worksheet, milk, honey, and sour grapes. Here's, here's a, a quick synopsis. The nation led by God gets to the edge of the promised land. They make their way. They get to the edge of the promised land. God calls them to send out spies. Now, this is interesting they didn't decide to send out spies. I think that would be a natural thing to get there and go, where are we going? What's over there? Let's find out. God actually tells them, leads them to send out spies into the land. All right, let me read some verses right there. Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all the men whom were the heads of the sons of Israel. God says, send out spies. Moses listens and they pick the, the leaders, the spies that will be the heads of each of the tribes of Israel. Chapter 13, verses 17 through 24. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went out and spied the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rob. And Lobo Hamath, when they had gone up into the grave, they came to Hebron and Ammon and Sheshai and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskel, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, 
and they carried it on a pole between two men. These grapes are huge with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. All right, they go. They spend 40 days, and they survey the land. Go up on the high spots, go to the low spots, go to the cities, and survey the land. They go. They spend 40 days uh, making a survey of the land of Canaan, the promised land. They come back, and the report honestly is good, and it's bad. Sometimes we think, well, it's good, and they just misinterpret it. Or it's bad, and these guys just had faith. Well, it's actually a good and a bad report. It's good because of this. They come and they say, you know what? There's food in abundance. They come and say it actually flows with milk and honey. There's a, there's a lot of great things there. They bring back the grapes, and a cluster of grapes is so big that they carried on a pole between uh, two people. And, and so, you know what? It's a, it's a promising land. Uh, there are many blessings there. The food is there. It's a, it's, it's a, a place of abundant uh, goodness. And so that's the good report. Now, the bad report is that there are people in the land that are strong. And so they start to say, well, some of the descendants of, of this guy are here. In fact, at one place they say some of the folks are giants. There are giants in the land. Uh, they say the cities are well fortified. They have walls and armaments around the cities. And so it is a good report, but it's also a bad report. The interesting thing is now the 12 give their really their reconciliation of the report. Here's the report. Here's our recommendation. Here's what we recommend having seen what we've seen. Caleb and Joshua say this. We should go in. We've seen it. We've seen both sides. They say we should go in. Chapter 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people. They've just given him the report. He quiets the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. The other 10, having seen the same thing, they say this, we should not go. All right, let me, let me tell you their report. Chapter 13, starting in verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against this people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people, all the people whom we saw in it are of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. All right. Here's an interesting thing. Think about this. Twelve spies go in. The two spies say we should go in. We should take it over. God's with us. Those two saw the exact same thing as the 10. They saw the exact same thing. The 10, they say there's no way we're going to go in. We're going to get slaughtered. There's giants in the land. Those 10 saw the exact same thing as the two. So you got two different recommendations. They saw the same thing. They were witness to the same thing. 
Here's the deal, and I want you to think about this. Here's the, here's the point to that. Why does God send the spies? And I don't know that I've ever really thought about that, but he sent them. He sent them. They didn't say, we need to survey it and figure this out. He sent them. Why does God send the spies? Why doesn't he just say, I've led you this far. I'm going to lead you the rest of the way. You don't need to know who's there. We're going to go on in. Here we go. Instead, he says, send the spies. Why does he send the spies? Here's the deal. It all comes back to trust. It all comes back to trust. Now, I want you to listen. Over and over and over again, God says, you can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. Over and over again, God is telling us, you can trust me. You can trust me. He's, he's really asking them, and, and maybe it goes to us today as well, what would it take for you to trust me? What if I heard your cries? What if I raised up a deliverer? What if I crushed Egypt? What if I opened the Red Sea? What would it take for you to trust me? So here he has done all these things, and then he's saying, I'm telling you, trust me, trust me. Over and over and over again, God calls people to trust him. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why? Why does he want you to trust him? Why does he want us to trust him? Let me tell you why. All of this goes to Jesus. All of this goes to Christ. Did you know we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone? God is teaching his people, always was, you can trust me, you should trust me, you'll be safe in trusting me. So guess what? It's all about trust. He was teaching them, trust me. He's telling us, you can trust me. So we're going to be saved by trusting God. Let me tell you something else. After we're saved, we're going to walk with Christ by trusting God. And so you know what? God may call you to do certain things. God may call you to change certain behaviors. God may call, call you to do something that you didn't think you're going to have to do. So it's not just trust in salvation. It's actually trust in life. So you're going to have to trust God to walk with Christ. Well, you know what? You're going to have to go against the flow of the world. You're going to have to go against the flow of, of popular thought over and over again. We're going to be saved by trust. We're going to walk with Christ because of trust in trust. So God is calling them, trust me, trust me, trust me. The difference in the 10 and the 2 is not what they saw, but how they saw God. I want you to hear that again. The difference in the 10 and the 2 is not what they saw, but how they saw God. All right, let me give you a, a free bonus um, right here. I think most of us would say, I want to have greater faith. I want to trust God more. I want to trust God more quickly. I, I, don't, I think all of us would say, I want to trust God. If he says do it, I want to do it. I want to be available to do it. How do we grow in our faith in God? How do we grow in our trust in God? The New Testament, the guy says, I believe, but help my unbelief. How do we grow in our trust for God, of God? Here's the deal. It's the exact same formula. It's the exact same thing. When you know who God is, and when you know what God has done, you're able to trust him. When you know who God is, is he trustworthy? Is he faithful? Is he kind? Is he wise? Is he gracious? Is he powerful? All of these things. When you know who God is, and when you know what he's done, you're able to trust him. Well, guess how that happens for us? 
that happens when we spend time in the Word of God. You know who God is. You grow in your knowledge of God. You know what He's done. You grow in your knowledge of what He's done, and you're able to trust Him more when you spend time in God's Word. I think many of us think, I want to trust God more. Here's a magic pill. Here's a prayer you pray, and it's going to happen. It actually happens when you know God and you know what He's done, and both of those things grow when you spend time in God's Word. All right, the next thing we see is the people's response. The people's response. Hearing the reports, having seen all that God has done. Now, the estimate is there's about two to three million people um, with the sons of Israel, the, the Hebrews. Two to three million people. They've seen God, what he's done. They've seen his deliverance. Hearing the reports, having seen what God has done, here's their response. Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh, that we would have just died in Egypt. Or that we had died in this wilderness. Why don't we just die on the way here? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now I want to think about that. They actually say, we have been slaves 400 years, we've been tortured, mistreated, and they actually say, let's get us a new leader and go back to Egypt. Can you imagine that walking back into Egypt? Can you imagine as they show back up? They actually think the best thing to do here is get a new leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of, of Jephunneh of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. They're not going to devour us. We'll take over them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Moses says, here's the report. They turn on them. They say, let's vote us a new leader. Joshua and Caleb say, by all means, let's go. God is with us. He, he's promised us this, he'll deliver it. And they say, no, we'll just kill you. We're going to kill you too, and we're going to silence your voice. They replace Moses. They want to replace Moses. They want to kill Joshua and Caleb. They want to rebel against God. Here's the problem right here. They're running on their wisdom. Well, there's, there's an enemy over there we can't conquer. Their cities are fortified. They're running on their logic. They're taking up their plan. Notice this, and I think it's interesting, it's still, um, we still see it today, it's a big deal. Notice how the movement of the group works. 
Notice how what we call group think works. Here's a group, and all of a sudden the group gets loud, and the group moves this way, and everybody just goes with the group. Think about this. If there are perhaps 3 million people, that's an estimate, 3 million people there in a group, were there not a 1,000 people that said, well, God's actually been with us? Were there 3 million people, were there not 500 people that said, God hasn't left us, God's been with us, look at how he's provided for us. Were there not 500 people? What if those people had spoken up? What, what if they'd have said, remember what God has done? What if, what if 300 people had said, let us remind each other of the Red Sea? Do you remember the Red Sea? Two things to take out of that, and I think they're, they're very important today. The culture we're living in, the world we're living in, the stands we're going to have to take as followers of Christ. Two things to take out. Listen very carefully, these two things. First thing to be sure of is this. The group is not always right. The group is not always right. You know what we see today? A lot of times the group's absolutely wrong. The group's going this way. The group says this. Peer pressure's mounting. You know what? The group is not always right. We should be sure of that. And the second thing is this. Sometimes right needs a voice. And I go back, what if 300 people have said, oh, no, we're going with Joshua. What if 500 people said, no. Do you remember who our God is? What if a 1,000 people would have said, our God is our Savior God, and he's provided for us all this way. Sometimes right needs a voice. You know what? Today, right needs a voice. Sometimes right needs somebody to say, no, this is what God has said. This is who God is, and we're going to side with what God has said and who he is. All right, the next part of this is a crazy occurrence, and I'll just tell you, the next part of this is crazy. It's not something we teach that much. I don't know that I ever heard it as a kid. I don't know that I ever heard it as a young adult. I've heard this. I hear they get there, they send in spies, they don't go. I don't know that I've ever heard this. And so let me show you this weird thing that happens. Um, God is angered. They, they say, we're not, we're not going in. God's angered. God tells them the punishment. Numbers 14, 11, and 12. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with a pestilence and dispossess them. I'm going to leave them. And I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. God says, I'll kill them. I'll be done with them. How, how do they see all these miracles and not follow me? Moses pleads and says, what will the Egyptians say? What will the watching world say? Right. Moses pleads with, with God. So God says this, those who saw all of the signs, God, those who saw all of the miracles and yet disbelieved are not going to enter the promised land. God says, I'm going to relent. I'm slow to anger. I'm not going to kill them all. But those that should have known better, those that saw the miracles and did not believe, they're not going to the promised land. Chapter 14, verse 22 and 23. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, 
yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. God tells them, everybody um, that's older than 20 years of age, those that saw and should have known better, they're going to die. He actually says in three places, their corpses will lie in the wilderness. They're going to go back to the wilderness. They're going to march around for 40 years. He tells them that. And over the course of that 40 years, those that should have known better are going to pass away. They're not going to the promised land. All right. We know that part. We've heard that part. Let me show you this part. Verse 39. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Those that should have known better and didn't know better, those that didn't act in faith, they're not going in. They're going to die in the wilderness. When Moses said that, they mourned greatly. Listen to this. Here's something I don't know that I ever heard as a kid. In the morning... However, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. The next day, they actually get together and they actually say this direct quote. Here we are. We're ready to go. We're going in. I know we've sinned. I know we didn't listen, but let's go now. We'll go this morning. Here we are. We're ready to go today. Here's the, here's the truth to that. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Today, we think, here's what God says. God says, here's the best way to live. God says, here's the best way to handle your finances. God says, here's the best way to be in relationships. God says, here's the best way to raise your kids. God says, here's the, here's the best way to do business. God tells us. He leads us. He commands us. And we start to think, you know what? I will ease into that. I'll ease into that. I'm not ready right now, but I'll do a little bit, maybe a little bit more next year. We think we'll test the waters in that. God says, here's my plan. Here's what I tell you to do. And we say, well, I'll, I might do a little bit and see how that goes. I might see how inconvenient that is. And we think we'll test the waters of obedience. We think we'll tell God when the time is right. You know what? When I'm at this age, you know what? When I'm at this place, then I'll walk in obedience. God, I will tell you when I will obey. Delayed obedience is not obedience. These foolish people get up the next morning and say, here we are. We're ready to go. God says, I'm not going with you. A bunch of them, if you read the account, they take off to go anyway. Guess what? They die in battle. They die. God's not with them. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Here's what obedience is. Obedience is quick. God says, do it. We're doing it. I don't understand it. We're doing it. I don't like it. We're doing it. Obedience is quick. Obedience is decisive. Okay, this is what God has said. We're, we're doing it. Well, shouldn't we talk about it? Shouldn't we think about it? Shouldn't we make pro and con lists? No. Obedience is decisive. We're doing it. God says it. We're doing it. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Here's the thing that, that is a growing thing. 
Our goal, your goal, my goal is to get to the place that our obedience is quick. Now, that takes time. That takes time learning to trust God, knowing who God is. But our goal, and it would be great if it happened when we were 14. It would be great if it happened when we were 24. It would be great if it happened when we were 34. It would be great if it happens before we're 94. But our goal is that God says this, I don't need anything else. God says this, I don't need to weigh it out. God says this, I don't need a discussion. My obedience is going to be quick. You know why? Because I know who God is, know what he's done, know that he's trustworthy. Our goal is to get to that place. The last piece of the lesson, and it's on your worksheet there, the last piece, as you read those chapters, as you start to get to the end, even their decision to say, well, we'll go in now. The last piece you see is regret. They mourn. We wish we'd, we wish we'd have listened to yesterday. I want you to think about this. God promised them that land. God told them he's going to give it to them. God did mighty and miraculous things to get them to that place. I want you to picture this. Can you imagine as they turn around and walk back out in the wilderness? They walk out under a death sentence. Everybody under, over a certain age, they're going to die. They walk back out. Behind them is the promised land. Behind them is rest. Enter into my land and there's going to be rest. Behind them was peace and rest. The provision of God behind them is the, the, the land promised to their fathers. And they actually turned three million people. Some of them have died in this process and they start to walk back out. Can you imagine the regret? And I don't, I don't know which day had to be worse. That first night, we ought to be across that river. The second night, first funeral. Somebody's older than 20. Another funeral, another funeral, another funeral, another funeral. 10 years. Oh, if we'd have just listened. If we'd have just listened. 20 years. Another funeral, another funeral, another funeral. Oh, if we'd have just listened. Can you imagine the regret? Here's the deal to that. Disobedience always brings regret. Man, you can dress it up and you can try to hide it and you can try to numb yourself to it. If you walk in disobedience, it will always show back up in the form of regret. You will say, oh, I wish I hadn't gone there. Wish I hadn't done those things. Wish I hadn't said those things. Wish I'd listened to what God was saying. Wish I'd lived according to the command of his word. Disobedience always brings regret. Let me tell you the flip side of that. Walking in obedience may not be understandable, may not be easy, may cost you, but it will always bring peace. The flip side of that, I don't know why God said do this. I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. I don't know if I can pay the cost of what it's going to cost me to be obedient, but I can promise you this, walking in obedience will always bring peace. God's way is best. That's what he was showing them. God's way is best. Be quick in obedience. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, and I'll lead us in the word of prayer. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we come. We're thankful for the truth of your word. I pray as we hear it that we're impacted. I pray we have a desire to know what you say, to know who you are, to know where you're leading. And I pray we have a desire to walk in obedience. Though none go with us, though it's the 10 against the two, whether it's the 3 million against the two, though none go with us, Lord, help us walk in obedience. 
Help us to be quick in obedience. Help us to discern what you say and be quick to stand in it. I pray especially in a day that we're living in, help us to walk in truth and uphold the truth and tell others of the peace that comes from that truth. Lord, I pray for the folks here. Bless them, encourage them. Uh, as, they, as they go home, let them think about this. Let it make a difference. I pray again for the other classes meeting. Um, use them as well. We tell you we love you and we praise you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.